I might recommend Amazon.com. I've ordered a lot of things from them lately. <laughs> oh, you're following in my footsteps. <laughs> I've finally given over to it. Why go outside? Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hi! And Jason in DC. Hey. Hi, guys. Hey! So how's how are you? Ladies first, Trisha. <laughs> I want to point out that uh, the last episode, or when you asked how you were, you went, oh, so hopefully... <laughs> We that was improvement. improvement. Silence was improvement. Yeah, and silence is better than oh. oh. <laughs> um, I'm good. Um, I got a massage earlier today, and so I'm feeling really, really fine. Man, I have to say though, I am the, my masseuse. She's always like, "You're so tight." I'm like, "I'm so sorry." I'm. What? Why are you apologizing? To <laughs> That's why you're there. <laughs> well, because the funny thing is, it's like if I'm never tight, I'm never coming back to you. Is this not what you want? But she's always like. Um, you know, I'm going to give you homework. I think you need to take a hot bath. And I was like, I think I come to you because I always need it. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, hello. You know, why would you apologize to her? <laughs> I mean, I didn't apologize, but I was thinking, about, I was like, do I need to keep, do I need to apologize to you that my shoulders oh, are tight? Of course not. That's why you go there. <laughs> I'm sorry, doctor, that I'm sick. I really apologize. I I'm hopping on you. What if you went to your employer and your employer's like, wow, you're broke. And you're like, I'm sorry. That's literally why you're there. No, but I, I do think like I'm I, I, I just I think I carry so much tension in my so my shoulders though. It's part of a nightmare. Oh. Isn't it great getting a massage? You just it feel really like is. Oh god. It's been too long. And every time I get a massage, I'm like, why don't I do this regularly? And then at the end of the hour, he's like, Can I have a hundred dollars, please? Exactly. Like, that's why. Yeah, that's why. That's why it's a hundred dollars for an hour. Uh mine is not, 39. What's that? What? Mine is 39. Well, live in New York City. <laughs> I don't remember the last time anything cost $39. You go to someone who's not licensed, Trisha? <laughs> I mean, are you trying to tell me that my Thai massage place is not licensed? I believe I see licenses <laughs> on their walls, so I feel like it's okay. <laughs> if oh I could God. read it. Anyway, I don't know. I heard, and I, I followed this up, my friend was telling me about an acupuncturist in Long Island mm-hmm. who they went... <laughs> Mm. This is even a fun story because it didn't happen to me. But we looked it up on Yelp and it's true. An acupuncturist in Long Island where uh, she went and it was like in some like rickety old house. And it was like in the back of the house. And they were like, they laid down. It was like, okay. And they started taking off their shirt. And the acupuncturist was like, no, 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 you could leave it on. What? <laughs> First of all, anytime you go, can you judge a location? I can't. I can't. Proceeded to do the acupuncture through the closet. <laughs> Wait up! That person's an idiot. Why are you letting someone stick needles into you? I don't get that. You That's have no the idea. Thing. Acupuncture. I mean, massage. If they're not licensed, may not be very good. You'll probably be fine. You know, haircut. But needles being stuck into your body, like you can't Through play with that. Your clothes in the back of a rickety house on Easter. <laughs> I'm sorry. That person is simply, simply demanding that they be exploited. I can't. I can't. I can't take it seriously. Oh, God. And this is like one of those things when like hikers disappear. It's like the two hikers went into Devil's Pass where no one has ever survived and now they're gone. I'm like, well, Devil's Pass. can we? I mean, I want to be sympathetic for their families, but 
was there not a stop point? Like, was, <laughs> was there any moment? Was there any moment when this person drove the acupuncturist's house and it was like in a dead end and the lights were off? <laughs> Didn't you say to yourself? And then it was like, no, I like to sew people into their clothes, like, you know, <laughs> Silence of the Lamb style or whatever. And you're like, mm, okay. I don't know. <laughs> Jason, what's new with you? What's new? It's been a good start to 2019. I feel like I am in good spirits. I feel good. I don't know if anything's new. Anything is new, but I feel good. Okay, that was vague. Um, yeah. And helpful. Thanks. Yeah, very vague. Very well, vague. You know, you know what? When we last spoke, we talked about going to the dentist. I went to the a dentist. Lot. Weirdly. And, and my, um, I feel like I had, I've been using a Sonicare electric brush for the first time in my life. And what I think my, right I think my teeth are cleaner than they've ever been. That's so exciting. It's just a contrast or not contrast, but it's, you know, Trisha told a massage story. I told a dentist story. There you go. Chris, have you been to any health professionals recently? <laughs> You'd like to share your experience. I want to reflect on, I don't know. Your teeth have been cleaner than they've ever been before. Like, that's what the podcast is for now. Like, hey, hey, a couple of years ago, that would have been my media recommendation. Yeah, so, listen, <laughs> remember that year you weren't on the podcast? Remember that? Remember that year? It's followed directly that recommendation. So, I'm just saying. Uh, I'm doing great, by the way. Thank you both for asking. Sure. Uh, I've, I, I had a great day today. Uh, my good friend, our good friend, Alonzo, was off from work. He's never off from work. So we had like a day out. We went to the Whitney. We saw our Warhol exhibit. It won't be my media recommendation. <laughs> um, I think I've just seen too much Warhol. I don't know. I don't know. I I, can't, I get its importance, but I don't care. <laughs> so. That's actually really ironic since his art was largely about like the you know overexposure of certain images. Like and now you find him his images to be overexposed. I, no, I get it. Like I, I get it and I can appreciate what he was trying to do. And I think even my not caring is part of the effect that he was trying to have, like this like bombarding you with art. Mm-hmm. Um but he, he it worked. I don't care. I, <laughs> if I never see Warhol again, I'm good. Really, I am. I've I've been oversaturated. So yeah, welcome to 2019, everyone. I hope your year start off really, really well. Did you guys make New Year's resolutions or no? No. Jason? No, I don't. I don't really do that. How about you? Um, I resolved to tell the truth more. What does that mean? You've been lying to me. <laughs> well, no. on the last podcast, you said you were you wanted to keep lying. This is so no, strange. That's, that's not what I said. That's, that's kind that's of what you said. What I said. That's a mischaracterization. <laughs> Um, no, just like, uh, I, I let a lot of things slide with people and in situations. Cause I'm always like, I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't care where this is going. Like, I'm just going to shut up and whatever I get to get out of this situation. I'm just going to start speaking up more, not necessarily calling people out, but I just need to be more honest about like, I like this. I don't like this. Like shit like that. I've, I've taken going with the flow to a new level and it's like, man, I don't, I probably don't need to be there. Like. I'll wait till I'm old and infirm and I have to go with the flow. But right now I, I don't really necessarily have to always go with what the crowd is doing. So I'm that, more reticent. I'm like, you're more reticent than ever. Yeah. I remember I used to be like, I used to be running off at the mouth. Now I'm just less inclined to do it, to be honest. See, I want to switch places with you. 
Good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> we need to switch places. I, I don't necessarily want to run off at the mouth. I just, I just probably want to speak up a little bit more. That's all. Um, meanwhile, you continue to, um, shut down or whatever that is that's going on well you know as jason says there's just far too many opinions out there i remember years ago i remember thinking to myself i have too many opinions and they're and i'm sharing them too much remember i do remember that conversation and, and i was like uh, I'm and over then we it. immediately started a podcast so. <laughs> years so. ago but i just i don't know i don't know sometimes i look at things nowadays i feel like i'm like meditating as i'm watching conversations you know how they say watch things pass by i see people engage in these like really intense frothing at the mouth discussions and i'm like i'm not sure i care <laughs> that's age though I no you know i, I i'm feel, maybe it is age i'm feeling that way too i, I feel like <laughs> The image that comes to my mind is that is people with like locked horns. Yeah. And like people are just, they constantly have their horns locked. It's like, I mean, there are times, obviously I'm not against conflict or confrontation. There are times when that's productive. There are a lot of times when it's like, what you're expending that energy for what, what do you plan to accomplish in this conflict? I don't find it. Yeah. Um, but so there it is. Uh, let's, uh, let's move it along and jump right into topics. Very exciting topics, listeners. Mm. Shit. Now I've really, I've really gilded the lily now. (laughs) It's all downhill from here. I'll cut that all downhill. (laughs) Okay. Take every, take what I said. This is going to be very boring. Just please stop listening now. Um, (laughs) so what has captured my attention and the attention of entire nation has been the rise of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is the um, congressperson for New York's 14th district, which happens to be my district. That's right. I voted for her, although I didn't vote for her. I, I was going to say, I remember. I didn't vote for her in the primaries. <laughs> I voted for Joseph Rowley. But anyway. You're a conservative. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. It was a pri- it was a democratic primary. Same difference, <laughs> according to her. Yeah, exactly. According to her, you might as well. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. You now she has over two million Twitter followers. She stands out because one, she's twenty nine years old. Two, she run ran this grassroots campaign to unsuit Joseph Crowley, who is was like third most powerful Republican in the House, and now Democrat she, Democrat. Uh, Democrat in the House. Thank you. And he was really making his career until this young former waitress was like, I want to be a congressperson. And now she is. Um, she's She is stands out because she takes it to the haters. Republicans hate her. Like, hate her like, like evil stepmothers hate princesses in Disney movies. Like, they hate her. And But she's here for it. She takes them on on Twitter, um, which, I, which I guess is now the language of young people. Uh, young people in their 20s, and she's mostly successful. Um, But what's coming out now is that there are some on the left who think that she is a little, dare I say, mouthy, that she, um, in the words of Whoopi Goldberg, should shut up and learn something first before she opens her mouth. And people, there are calls for her to sort of calm down, especially because she has this tendency to um, encourage people to run against Democratic incumbents and the Democratic caucus uh, and party is not happy about that. So what I wanted to talk about was just basically the whole 
you know, this whole roller coaster of AOC and what you guys think about it, what you guys think about um, the Democrats sort of like being upset with her that she should only turn her fire on Republicans um, and not necessarily um, right of center Democrats. Um, I also want to talk about Whoopi Goldberg's statements on The View, which I hate talking about The View, but I also love talking about The View because I hate them. <laughs> anyway, what do you guys think? I do want to take just a moment to, before we delve deeper, to just recognize it, it really is, she is brilliant. I mean, that is really impressive. Whether you agree with her policy positions, whether you agree with the extent to which she is, as you said, taking it to the Democrats, she, it's, it's amazing what she's done. Um, you know, without a whole lot of money and without any kind of name recognition prior, the fact that she got elected and she's getting the attention that she's getting, I, I think it's really impressive. Well, for the sake of me moderating this discussion between us, I'm going to need you to explain her brilliance then. Yes, what she's done has been incredible, but you said that she's brilliant. Why do you feel that way? I mean, I think to get elected, I mean, in New York, where, you know, there is a political machine unlike almost any other. And, you know, the Democratic establishment is a very hard place to break into. And for her to have broken in by taking on the establishment, I think that takes brilliance. The fact that she has that many Twitter followers, I just think it's, it's to me, it's very impressive that she has been able to attract as many people, as many supporters as she has and, and organize people. Um, it just seems like in a very short period of time, she's gone from someone that none of us has ever heard of to being in Congress with a significant national following, not just in Congress. I mean, how many people can most of us name in Congress, right? The average American can probably name a few of them, and everyone knows her now. Um, and there have been people there are people that have been there a lot longer uh, that she is much more um, recognizable. I think that takes brilliance. Well, and I think you know, I think one one of the things I think is striking about um, AOC, which is what she refers to herself on uh, as on Twitter, is I think she understands the. Um, how to effectively use the current media environment to her best interests. And I think a lot of people are balking at that and they seem a little bit like um, old folks, like get off my lawn types. But I think she really has figured out a way to use this space to, to sell her messages. I don't think that people are attracted to her because of sort of empty promises. Because if you think about the way she did run her campaign, which was very grassroots based, knocking on doors, it was very people to people, person to person. And then she was able to translate that in the online environment and sort of figure out how to engage people in understanding their government. I feel like rather than sort of balk at her, people should be looking at her on some level and say, what lessons can we learn? How do we figure out a way to translate our um, the things that we think are valuable and, and learn from her and engage her in that forum so that we can we too can make a case for our constituents? Instead, it seems to me that they are focused on trying to school and police her in a way that, let's be honest, in a government that's kind of stuck, I'm not sure you should be acting as if you are better. Hey, hello, you but, know what I mean? <laughs> but they are because <clears throat> what I love about AOC is that she is threatening to the power base, period. 
not Democrat, not Republican, the power base. And she's got progressive ideas. She wants to save the country, her words. She is trying to mobilize Americans in the sort of this progressive uh, direction. Mm -hmm. And uh, Republicans are definitely in the way of that, but so are Democrats. These Mm -hmm. Democrats who have held power for years and years and years and decades. And I'm not saying that they're bad people. It's just that they are completely invested in the system as it is. And here comes someone who doesn't have any ties to that. And she's like, well, what's wrong with this? Like, you know, let's, let's get this green deal going. Like, why is there any barriers to that? Now, while that might be a bit naive, like her enthusiasm for that, I completely support. And people going to her, like, you need to slow down, like, hold on, you need to, you know, there's definitely something to be said when you start a new job, like getting in there and making, making friends and understanding the power structure. Mm -hmm. But I feel like a lot of the criticism that she's getting isn't about that. It's not about like, we need you to understand the power structure. It's sort of like, you know, we need you not to attack the power structure, which is a weird thing when you come in being like, I'm kind of a radical. Well, I mean... I, I don't know if Jason, you want to speak, but I think it's um it's noteworthy to me though that you want to silence a person based on the thing that they sold to their constituents. I mean, she's engaging with her constituents always, right? Those are the people that she's sort of beholden to, and in a strange way, I feel like people are saying to her, "Guess what? Forget about your constituents. These are the real these are the real power brokers that you have to negotiate with." And so in some sense, I also think that they are pushing back at her attempts at transparency, her attempts at unmasking the process a little bit. Sure, because then the people are going to look at at people who don't live in Queens and the Bronx are going to look at their representatives and be like, oh, oh, I didn't know you could act that way to their own representative. Why don't you act that way? And they're going to be like, oh, because, you know, I'm deep in the pockets of donors. <laughs> yeah, or not. But I mean, <laughs> or it's not even that they're deep in the pockets. They're just not as skilled. Do you know, yeah. I think, I mean, I think my initial point was we cannot pretend that any politician coming next won't have to deal with the social media landscape and won't have to be adept at it. I think that's a great point. And, I, you know, I think with, the, there are obviously lots of differences, um, lots of them, and she seems like a very stand-up person. But, you know, the the president showed how a command of social media can completely upend the power structure. Um, and, and in some ways, she's done something similar on the Democratic side. To me, I think the big question is going to be whether, I don't know how much she's going to be able to get done. Right now, there aren't, even putting aside the social media stuff, the communication stuff, the brand, from a policy perspective, there aren't a lot of folks quite in line with her in Congress. And it's hard for me to imagine she's going to get a lot done. This is not a critique, by the way. Just it's hard for me to imagine she can get a lot done without a community of folks, a caucus, basically. And so whether the party continues to move in her direction and more people with her views get elected, whether she's able to help get people elected, which she has already tried to do even before she was uh, sworn in, that to me is going to be the big question because, you know, there are, you can see on both sides of the aisle, you have these individuals, you can say Bernie Sanders is one of them, who are kind of on the extreme of the party. They get a lot of attention, but they don't necessarily get their policies enacted. And and that'll be the question of whether, I, I think, I, 
you know that what what she did it got her elected. I'm not sure how much it'll get done on her agenda without more people with similar with similar positions. Well, I think she definitely needs to make friends, you know, and she has friends, and there are people there. There there are people there who support her and her ideas and and share her ideals. But I I feel a particular way about the what's coming out of the Democratic Party as far as like you know slow down. I just feel like it feels like coded language. Do you know what I, you know what I mean, Trish? Like it just, it feels well, very like, First coded. of all, it's coded because let's be honest, she's, um, she's causing a ruckus. Yeah. And she's a young woman of color causing mm-hmm. a ruckus. And she's, it's, it's, um, and she's in a rare position. There are not that many people of color there. So there is a kind of like, there's a feeling that you get when, when you are the surprise in the room and everyone says, Hey, Figure out the figure out figure out your part though. First, before you start jumping in and start demanding things, let's figure out your part. Let's put you in your place first, but, and let's 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 adopt a protocol. But I mean, to Jason's question though, I think that's that's a serious question. But the one one I want to ask you back: Do you think that she would be happy with compromised wins? She's gonna have to be. Sorry. Well, I mean, it's who, question. Who, you say that, but we 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 now know people aren't compromising. So, but that's the question, though. It's like, what what would she conceive of as a win? Because in many ways, she's pushed on this idea that Democrats have not gone far enough to distinguish themselves from Republicans. No, right? and I think I think the question of whether she'd be happy. I may hear what you're saying, Christine. You say she'll have to be, but. There are examples of these kind of lone wolves in in both chambers, both sides of of the aisle, who have been there a long time. Um, you know, to your point, they they please their constituents, so they keep getting sent back. But they don't necessarily get a lot done. But but for you know, again, I would say Bernie Sanders I put in this category, where he has a certain brand, he continues to live that brand. He has not compromised much, as far as I can tell. He hasn't necessarily gotten his policy aspirations enacted, but it, he continues to show up. He continues to run. He continues to get elected. Whether she's that person who being there and and I'll use the term fighting, even though I've been critical of that in our previous conversations, being there and fighting and advocating, even if her policy aspirations don't get enacted, maybe that is something she wants to do for her entire career. Maybe, maybe it's not. I mean, I think she wants to get things done, though. I think I think she is going to have to get things done. Otherwise, her opponents on both sides of the aisle are really going to come for her. I mean, I think that's my fear is that she's going to end up making she's already made enemies at the swearing in people booed when they that's called it. her to vote when they were voting for the speaker yeah. of the House. People Those booed. Republicans booing. It doesn't matter. They didn't boo anybody else. And she's to, a lightning rod. To your yeah. point, Trisha, right? She's a young woman of color. I just feel like if this was a young, 29-year-old, attractive white man who came in, I'm just wondering, strike that. I know that we wouldn't be getting the same kind of rhetoric. Shut up, learn something, sit down. You need to play real nice, you know, make some friends. I, I just, I don't feel it. And so even though I do think that she has been very outspoken and she's done, she's said, maybe not done, but she's said, she said a lot very quickly I think what's coming out of the left, I find particularly distasteful. Why do you find it distasteful from the left? Because there's some presumption that the left doesn't have its own respectability politics at play. No, no. Uh, okay. Okay. I heard it. it. 
it's just that I, I expect it from the right because it's a young woman of color, right? Yeah. So it's everything that they hate yeah. about America, right? The left may have problems with it too. They, I perhaps, but you know, to Jason, Jason said this point earlier, buried in something else is that, or no, I'm sorry, you said it, Tricia. The Democrats need to learn about how this happened. Because yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, but they don't win a lot of elections. <laughs> so it just seems to me that instead of like trying to cow her, bring her in line, alienate her, like find a way to use that energy, you know? Yeah. And what is she, what she's actually advocating for is for progressive ideas, right? And what it's exposing the Democrats as is not that progressive. Yeah. And will that hurt them? Probably. Because everything hurts the Democrats. They're terrible. Um, <laughs> but that's why terrible. I'm saying, <laughs> honey, but this is an opportunity for them to learn and to grow. And it's like, I feel like if they don't embrace this now, we're not going to be ready for 2020. Well, isn't that, I mean, isn't the myth, I mean, the mythology around um, the value of Clinton was that Clinton um, brought the party to the center and adopt certain ideas. So and look that where they, that left us. I mean, well, at the time, there was a lot of excitement about that. At the time, it was a win, right? At yeah. the time, it was a win. But now, years later, you can look back and say, wow, this is the cost of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, you might look at her as a harbinger for what is to come in the future. And so I think her prodding the party to go further left is particularly a useful moment. What freaks me out about it, though, is the reaction of people. I mean, I don't think that her ideas, it's so funny because when she presents her ideas, she's like, if these are radical ideas, well, then okay. I mean, even her marginal tax um, move that she suggested a few weeks ago, it only revealed that people in Congress didn't actually understand marginal taxes because people are like, oh, wow, this is the lowest they've ever been. We used to have it at a pretty high number in the 30s and the 40s. You know what I mean? So it's like, it seems to me that people are, you know, sometimes if they're the same people in the room, they get used to the same ideas, right? And so I feel like in these moments, it would be nice if they, first of all, if we hadn't read that piece about her, and I don't think any Democrat should have contributed to that piece, because that really suggests that there's this like underground underbelly of um, negativity that could be honed and exploited. And so and we're, I, and and we're it's referencing like, a piece in Politico written about in Politico, her. Yes. Sorry. Well, we'll link to it. We'll link to it as a part of this conversation. But it's just strange. It's strange to me that this woman has been in office for less than a month by the time y'all hear this. And there's already a kind of like <laughs> ginning up of negativity around it. I would look at it and be really proactive and say, okay, well, how did you unseat our most powerful Democrat? What does this tell us about the voters? What does this tell us about what we're failing to do for our constituents? What does it tell us about what you were able to capture and the zeal that you were able to capture in them? How do we translate this into messaging for for other campaigns? Like those are, kind, those are the questions I want to hear. And understanding how that could be brought to bear in in contests between Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, I feel Weird. like the Republicans have Trump. And now Democrats have AOC and there's something to be very different things, but there's something to be learned about how those people got elected. Yeah. Um, And unlike the Trump experiment, which I don't think the Republicans can repeat. um, I feel like this is something the Democrats can really work with. So it's just disappointing that they are, well, I mean, they're terrified, honestly, that's in the article in Politico. That's what they discuss is that some people are just afraid of her. Well, and, 
in a vacuum, I think what you're both saying makes sense. But the reality is, and Chris, you alluded to this earlier, because of the extent to which a lot of Democrats are beholden to certain interests, it's not so easy that they could just, you know, get behind some of the policies that she wants um, that that she wants, or even to use some of the tactics because they have certain power bases that are uh, demanding something different of them. I'm not justifying because it's a little disgusting, but I think that's the reality. It's not as it's not so easy for them to pivot. You know, some of those people have been in Congress forever, and they've been there on the backs and the dollars of certain folks that expect them to behave in a certain way and to pursue and defend certain policies. I, I am reminded a little bit of if you remember when there was a point when Barack Obama was running for president, and and you know. To a lesser extent, but there was some of this going on then, and there was. There and there's, I think there was, of course, um, a racial component. But, but, and this is, I think, the case now too. Even within, um, kind of circles of color in these places, there's there's also some kind of resentment. First of all, she's shown that she's willing to go after people regardless of their race, um, and even some of the younger folks of color. I think they've been, there's been a certain attitude portrayed towards her. And I, I remember when Jesse Jackson made some comment where he thought the mic was off and it was on about castrating Obama when he was running and publicly he was pretending to be very kind to him. And in reality, there was a, a lot of tension. And I, in some of this, it's complicated, but a lot of it is, this is kind of the generational cycle that that happens, that a younger group comes up or a younger person comes up and people feel like, oh, they didn't pay their dues. They didn't go through the route that we expected them to, that we had to go through. And, and it's conflict. And, you know, eventually she'll be at some point, you know, she will be one of the elder folks, but she's got a long way to go until then. Plus, I mean, it's just the part you got to play. Maybe that's actually her role. There always has to be that person, right? Isn't there someone that's a little bit of a spoiler in the mix? Someone to shake you up a little bit, ask you the tough questions. I mean, what, as a rule, what do you like mean? <laughs> well, I mean? Isn't there always you know, someone? You know, what's the value? Listen, when Obama was trying to get um, things done, what became very clear? We had blue dog Democrats, right? We're like, oh, wait, they're almost like conservatives. That became a big thing. So now we are in this moment. And I guess everybody's really frightened, right? Because you've got this sort of villain um, off in the side and everybody's like, we've got to play, we've got to be careful then. We've got, we can't ruffle any feathers. We've got to make sure that we're all together. And so I think there is a part on the Democrat side where they want to offer this like illusion of full solidarity because they don't want any dissension in the ranks. And, you know, because it feels like the other side is such a fearful space, but I think we have to be also really careful not to close off dissension not to close off avenues of information that may not be comfortable, but at least may get us where we want to go. Like, I think we have to be good about that. What I really like about her is that she sort of decalcifies the idea of political parties. You know, like the yeah. idea that like like ideas are bundled up as either red or blue. Yeah. And you have to get on board with either red One. Or mm-hmm. blue. And she's like, well, Medicare for all, education for everybody, and it doesn't matter who's red or who's blue. These ideas is where America should go. And I can see how that's threatening to both sides, right? Because then they would lose power yep. if, it, if it's about – in. and I like that about her a lot. And I think that's also why I find this 
particularly uh, disturbing. Uh, I'm going to shift gears and I'm going to slide directly into the second topic. But on the way there, Whoopi Goldberg on The View had made some comments about AOC after terrible human being Megan McCain had said some things, misleading things about her. Whoopi Goldberg jumps in to give her two, her her rich, you know, secret conservative black woman two cents. And she... <laughs> okay, pause. You know, I feel... I heard someone say this the other day and I thought it was so funny. But a comedian said like, ugh, I can't wait till I'm so rich that I have nothing left to say. <laughs> What does that even mean? <laughs> what it means is like, and, and we're going to talk about relatability later, but like Whoopi Goldberg has been so rich for so long. Is there anything about her ideas or experiences or opinions that you can latch onto as a regular person? In any case, so- Do you think well, that's what it is though? I think that is what it is. And, and hold that what, because I, okay. I want to drill into that. But mm-hmm. Whoopi Goldberg says that AOC needs to just shut up Listen, there's a lot of people who did a lot of things in the house. Look at John Lewis. Look at Diane Feinstein. Those people have been there for a long time. Sort of respect your elders. You know, I, I want AOC to turn down her goddamn music and go to bed. Like that, it was definitely that tone because that's the tone she delivers everything. And when I watched that happen, I was like, oh, this is exhausting. Because again, older black people with your respectability politics, like she has to play nice for what? Like, what has that ever gotten us? Ever? So I want to just talk about the state of respectability politics when it comes to, I mean, politics, but really anything. I mean, do you think respectability politics, I mean, I feel like it's out of vogue right now. Um, I, I feel like Whoopi in her statement was really disconnected from the moment. Where do you think the moment is? Well, if you put it like that, I definitely agree. I think you can see that all over the place. Respectability, it, you're right. It is not in vogue. People are not interested in respectability. Uh, there is a strong push for conflict, for confrontation, and for um, you know speaking your mind. So yeah, I think I think if you look around, I think I think that's right. One other, not to pull us back, but I will say what I think is another impressive thing about Ocasio Cortez is that everything we're talking about, I think so far she has been able to use to her benefit. When people are going after her, like I actually think her support. Strengthens, and maybe that gets to your question, which is, yeah, respectability, respectability politics are not most effective right now. Well, and also, can I add, I, I find the way that you contrast those things, Jason, problematic. Because you said conflict, um, confrontational, and you, you contrast those to respectability. And I, I dare say that you show respect by being honest and upfront about the realities of people's lives. And if the audience is made uncomfortable, then it's perceived as um, conflict-based interactions. But I think that, you know, if people are in positions of power and have been for quite some time and things have not changed for, for the people who've been marginalized, why is it, why is it not okay for marginalized people who sort of enter halls of power to, to challenge that and push back on that and ask those questions. Like what, what's been going on in this room? Like, why are we here? No, I, I didn't say it's not okay. I think it's fine. No, but I just, I think that there's been a kind of, I feel like when people say respectability politics, it, it underneath it is an assumption that it's, it's good and the other is bad. 
right? Because even the word respect connotes that this person is doing the right thing, is doing the thing that everyone has told us is the best way. And so I and so that's why I'm 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 sort of like I wonder about sort of even the label respectability politics, right? Like because mm. she hasn't been disrespectful. No, and that, I think that's, I mean? that's true. It's, and that's you know? that is also what's amazing. I mean, that's something I've noticed because on the one hand, like you see people on the right who've been able to use social media and kind of skyrocket Trump being the yeah. biggest example, but have done it by being like complete assholes. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. she has been able I, I agree with you. She she is respectful. It's a good point. I mean, I, maybe we need to define the term. But I, I definitely think she's she is respectful in all of her interactions, but she does not shy away at all from conflict. Or conflict. And I want to highlight what you said, Trisha, because like in going back to Whoopi Goldberg's comment, she insinuates that Ocasio-Cortez speaking her mind and being very passionate is some way disrespectful to the yeah. old guard of John Lewis and Diane Feinstein and the rest of them. And those things get conflated almost immediately. And it's that is problematic, isn't it? Right, yeah. Yeah. because they it's, thought John Lewis was disrespectful. Before. Hello, yeah. I mean, that's how he earned his his stripes was by being disrespectful in the ultimate way, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but now we can't calcify these people and put them on a pedestal. I mean, I think that's one of the thing. That's what's been interesting to me about sort of John Lewis's legacy as it relates to somebody like AOC in the current moment is I think he's always sort of emphasized well, at least he tries to emphasize this idea that anyone could do what he had done, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a kind of, um, I don't know. I feel like when we put these people up and say, we're kind of like, we're removing them from the realm of activities that normal people can do. There's nothing about AOC that suggests to you that you couldn't participate in government as she's doing. Which is part of her message. Exactly. And I think that's part of what's actually frightening is that there's nothing oddly, oddly. And this is what's so odd about it. Think about it. Supposedly, the message that Trump offers to his followers and people who love him is that this is something that I'm for you. I speak for every man. You too could be me, supposedly. Right. But not really. Because on some level, they all understood that his money allowed him to get to this place. But then you, on, in contrast, you have someone who actually came from the places that are supposedly blue collar and they're being attacked and sort of, um, thought, you know, and, and held up as kind of hypocrites. So I just, I, those kinds of like polarizing elements drives me nuts. Cause I'm like, the reality is she's your American dream. At least that's what you've told me. <laughs> the American that's, dream. Wow, that's true, Why right? do you continue to reject the American dream that you've been selling us on for decades? That's the part of that narrative that's all. I just never understood that narrative. And I don't understand why that narrative continues to be so resonant on the right, because I assume that they buy into the American dream or don't they? No. What? What? I mean, isn't the American dream they have that in some way they're going to be able to find a way to become a millionaire, too? Okay, that's that's different from what you're saying, though. The the left holds up. I mean, I remember before the midterms is like all these Democrats around being like, we need more women to run for office for local positions. Everyone go out there and run for office. And then everyone did. And now the Democrats are like, oh, shit, now that you've won, could you just please sit down and calm down and just hold up? Right. That's a very good point. Yeah. So, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Yeah, please, please, please keep it down. Yes, your elders are speaking. You know, and I think that's really confusing. The right, they're not, 
the American dream, honey, they believe in the American fantasy, the American white supremacist fantasy. No, right? I think there's an element of the American dream there, isn't no, there? No, because no, because listen, the Republicans are not about every man coming up. Some, at least some though, right? I mean, okay, sure. Obviously some. Yeah. But if you if I'm just going over the, the current events of the last couple of years, like I don't see that from on the right as much as it is on the left. I really don't see like I mean on the right, there's a lot of language like America by Americans, run by Americans, like but all of it is very coded and very loaded about class and race and gender. So it's it's hard it's hard to pull that apart. Like their message, I think, is really one of like the male superiority and white supremacy and all these things are really like, especially in the last four years. I mean, they've really married that Trisha. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's where, although there've always been elements of, you know, racism, white supremacy in Republican politics and and ideology, I do think it's moved more in that direction in the past four years. I mean, if you, you take like a figure like Mitt Romney, you know, kind of a previously mainstream Republican. I do think it was more laissez-faire economics can allow everyone to advance and, you know, it shouldn't matter what race you are and that kind of thing. And I do think the message of the current party is very different, which is, you know, white males, middle-aged white males, you are you have been oppressed, you're being oppressed, and, um, you know, we need to make America great again so you can thrive again, which is okay. which is a different message. And it's very troubling that that's the direction the party's gone, I hope some point it goes in a different direction <laughs> yeah um i want to move on slightly to our uh, uh, we have a subtopic today and it's about ellen degeneres so buzzfeed wrote an exhaustive and exhausting article on <laughs> ellen degeneres <laughs> uh, and it detailed just the history of her career from where 20 years ago she came out on her show called ellen and she was the first gay person to like have a sitcom for like exactly six months before ABC had to cancel it. And then she was blacklisted and, and follows her career up until today where she has become the queen of nice. She's, you know, she's the 15th highest paid celebrity in America, or is it the world? Um, it probably, well, probably the world if it's America. Um, and just what the article was, the article didn't say anything, but what it suggests um, is that Ellen DeGeneres made her career, uh, her daytime talk show career, on being relatable and likable when the beginnings didn't necessarily start like that. She was really pushing the envelope. But as she became successful and extraordinarily wealthy, um, she exists in this sort of celebrity bubble with her other celebrity friends, and it just becomes like a... Um, an echo chamber for her and that she is perhaps out of touch. Now, while it's, while it might be fun to talk about Ellen DeGeneres, I like Ellen, but I honestly don't care <laughs> about her in that degree. But what it raised for me, and we're talking about respectability, it raised for me um, like relatability. I don't know. The article raised a lot of things for me. Relatability was one of them. Access journalism was another. The idea that celebrities can, completely circumvent um, having to go through journalists and just deliver their messages directly to the crowd. I am referencing Ellen having Kevin Hart onto her show about three and a half weeks ago to explain, apologize for, 
double down on some homophobic comments that he made. It's, I'm not clear what that appearance was about to this day. I've watched it four times. I don't know what was trying to be accomplished by any party. Um, but I wonder if you guys had any thoughts about uh, what the article presented or what stood out to you. Well, I think I think what's noteworthy to me, because I've been thinking about Helen DeGeneres and I've been thinking about that. Oh, wait, I just want to, I'm sorry to cut you off, but listeners, Jamaicans have a really hard time with the eh sound. So you're <laughs> going to hear Trisha say Helen DeGeneres a lot. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Thanks. So now I have to work really hard to say Ellen. Um, no, but I, 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 I've been thinking about Ellen and I've been thinking about, I know, and I've been thinking about Kevin Hart. And I've actually been thinking about who was that very, very amazing radical gay activist? Um, Act up. Can, can you be more? Oh, um, Larry Kramer? Larry Kramer. And I, you know, I've really been thinking about this whole respectability language. One of the ways that you suggest that you're relatable to people, right, is you say, I'm just like you. But you're not, because we come at life through lots of different experiences. When I say I'm just like you, it means that maybe globally we have similar feelings, but the reasons why the feelings develop are very different, right? The circumstances that inspire it are very different. But this attempt is to sort of like connect our humanities together, right? That's the whole point. And I, so I can understand why you'd want, if you were a marginalized group, why you would want to move with relatability. But I, I think I've always really liked people who said, no, gay people are not just like you. We do this, we live our lives very differently, but it doesn't mean that we don't deserve to live our lives. I've often thought that like relatability has like undercut people's ability to actually see the unique parts of your experience or their own experience. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that that's actually what has like caused Helen to sort of fall into this trap where she thought she could act as a kind of um, go-between for Kevin Hart and her audience and translate something that people were trying to explain to her by completely dismissing it and saying, but hey, Kevin and I are human beings and we make mistakes. That just, it just was such a weird and simplified way of attacking that problem. I find it so tone deaf to the current moment. What I think is interesting about the Kevin Hart, Ellen DeGeneres moment was that, and again, going back to access journalism, access journalism is is the idea that before a certain moment in time to have access to celebrities and the like, we had to go through Barbara Walters, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Diane Sawyer, all these people who were tasked um, that, that celebrities had to go to to get their message out there. Now that's no longer an issue. I mean, with social media, they can take their messages directly to their constituents. With other rich cloistered celebrities like Ellen DeGeneres, you can just call her up and get your message out there. And what I find really interesting about that is that there's no feedback loop. Yep. You know what I mean? Like there was, there was nobody who was like, maybe we should listen. It's kind of like when Whoopi Goldberg, again, defended um, <laughs> Bill Cosby, Michael Jackson, and um, who's that anti-Semite who keeps making movies? Mel Gibson. Yes, Mel Gibson. And I'm like, okay, I get that these people are your friends, but like <laughs> – <laughs> Maybe if you just listen to the people who have been harmed, like I'm not saying you have to agree, you know, and it's hard not to defend your friend, but like can the lack 
of self-awareness of someone like Ellen DeGeneres impresses me. Straight up impresses me. Because <laughs> she's not a stupid person, you know, like from by all accounts. I just it impresses me that you can be so self-unaware and that you cannot see a moment. Jason, what do you think? Well, I want to go back to something you were saying, Trisha, which I really want to underline. I would love to permanently debunk the idea that we are all the same. Yeah. I do think it is true we are all human, and that is important. But there's been this idea that if we can't convince each other that we're all the same, all we can do is exploit and brutalize each other. Why do I need to see you as the same as me to treat you with, like, respect and, God forbid, love? Like, it's so absurd. And I, you know, my... The best articulation I've ever seen, I don't know if you two read this book, and I haven't thought about this book in years, but I just thought about it. The Epistemology of the Closet, uh-huh. which axiom one is people are different from each other. Like, yes, people are different from each other. They're different from each other in all kinds of ways. And that is not bad. That does not mean that we should mistreat each other. It's just a fact. And I, it really frustrates me this again and again, like the, kind of this liberal humanist attempt it's well-intentioned i think but of oh no we have to see each other as, as the same no no we it's, don't and we should be well able to accept in- each other across mm-hmm. lines of difference it's well-intentioned but it's created by the existing power structure yeah right because yep. it's it's sort of like how we arrived at gay marriage as the primo number one gay issue right, right. it's it's about relatability and respectability like i'm gay I like to do things that involve like multiple genitalia that look like just like mine, you know, (laughs) all day, every day, different configurations all the time. However, I'm just like you. Well, how is that possible given what I just said? (laughs) I'm not just like you. But that's how we arrived at gay marriage because in the push to be relatable, right? And be respectable. (laughs) then it's like, well, I'm just like you. I want to get married. Forget about all the details. But that ends up putting you in this box, right? And that's what the BuzzFeed article was saying about Ellen is that after all these years, now she's in this box that she can't get out of. Because it's like, even then, even even now, if she has someone on her show, if she has a woman on her show and she's lewd to some degree – it's it reads so much worse because it's like, oh no, wait a minute, Ellen. I, I thought you were like us, you know. I, I, I you were relatable. You're a lesbian, but I just assumed that you were like a Barbie doll down there. Like what <laughs> you know. And that's the thing, Jason. I I'm gonna be the third person on this podcast to stress this that we are not all the same and we don't all want or need or desire the same things. And I I, I do understand the approach though. I understand because well, I think explain it's, your understanding of that because I know don't. What? I think it's I think it's a utilitarian approach, right? Because we have landed in a place where we really don't think that we can organize our knowledge in a way that respects true difference of opinion or a true difference of experience. Like we have to, you know. That's why when someone says we're all human beings. You know, where if you're having a discussion and they, they're like, they, they uh, enter. I hate that, right? Because which is, it's like, the most facile thing that you can like, say. I, it, it absolutely devastates any arguments because then you're like, what am I supposed to say after that? Yes, we're all human beings. However, this human being went into a space and was threatened by the thing that makes her human, which is partially race, mm-hmm. sex, whatever. You know, so it's just, um, 
I, but I, I don't know if we have figured out, I don't think we have the capacity. I don't think culturally we have figured out a way to fully allow people to be their separate and different selves and be okay with that. I don't think we've ever been able to do that. What, which is why it was important for us during the civil rights movement, right? To dress in suits, Ugh. to put ourselves like, right. That was the thing, right? So, I mean, to some degree that was playing off of the idea that we were respectable black folks. Right. And we are human beings. I mean, like the cue is like, how do we, how do I let people know that I'm a human being? The only way apparently I can let them know is by adapting to the world in exactly the same way that they have. So if I'm like dancing in the street in thongs, apparently I don't really deserve to have my rights because, you know, I just, it seems really, really difficult to be in your face different and offer a contrast to others and without that being off-putting. Well, it's because yeah. we don't, we don't value difference. No, and I think that's a really good point. I mean, that actually, it's pushing my thinking. I think the mistake we make is that we think that the recognition of difference leads to brutality and exploitation. But I actually think it's the opposite, where there's an interest in brutality and exploitation, and then difference is exploited to yeah. justify. Yeah, marker. yeah. And, and so that there's this, I think it's a naive belief that if we can convince ourselves and each other that we're all the same, that will end brutality and exploitation, but it doesn't, because there are people who are greedy, there are people who are brutal, and they just use difference to justify it. But it doesn't work, does it? Like, if we go back to Ellen, has it worked for her? I mean, now well, she's, it did she's as... Right? It did, right? Because this is the thing, right? Because part of the reason why she her show was initially rejected, right, when she came out, even though... Her sitcom. Not, her sitcom. Even though not much had changed, really, about the show, the only thing that was really different was that people were now conscious that she was gay. Well, I, I want to interrupt you. Many times they lived. The, the fifth season of that show yeah, they was had different. Yeah. In that, she was a gay woman living her life. Living it wasn't her like life. she was like, it's time for, you know, yeah. you know I mean? or anything like that. Yeah, no. <laughs> the show itself wasn't substantially different, right? <laughs> yes. But now there was a kind of awareness that then caused the audience to reflect on what was contrasting. And that seemed to be... An unpleasant experience mm-hmm. and a difficult experience for the audience to overcome. And there, there she went, right? And then she disappeared. But then if you think about when she returned, she essentially sanitized herself completely, right? There was no part of Helen that would ever convince you that she was sexual at all. It was like she actually returned to the previous character she had played on the show before. Yeah. She- oh, my God. You're right. She really did. She That's actually what she did. She created a blank slate um, and a pretty sanitized one as well. Every now and then you get a, an occasional glimmer in a, in a joke and it'll take you aside because you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should be attracted to her because she's a woman, too. You're like, you know, whatever. But for the most part, you didn't occupy a space where you were contemplating whatever it is that's supposed to make her different from you. That was See, not, but, that's not the, that's not the model that she offered. But now she's in a trap of her own making. It's right? tra- Everyone gets in a trap because of their own making. She doesn't get to be different. And she is continually, continually trying to be respectable and relatable and, and reaching out to these celebrities who <laughs> I won't say do heinous things, but she's got to find commonality with these people. And, and it's like, I don't know. I just feel like there's a different path. And is this not an object lesson 
for any minority or I any movement, it an it's a real good object lesson because like Ellen is extraordinarily rich. Yeah. Um, and by some markers, that's fantastic for her. For but sure. you know, who's to say who she really is anymore? It just, when you watch her show and when you watch her Netflix comedy special, which by the way was funny, like I'm a, I, I've been an Ellen DeGeneres stand-up fan from she's back super, in the day. I haven't seen it, but she's a good, she's always done. Yeah. Um, before this incarnation of Ellen, I remember once in high school, I was homesick and she had an HBO special and I laughed so hard, so hard. I was crying and coughing and almost peed myself. My mom came in and said, you're going to school tomorrow. So <laughs> thanks, Ellen DeGeneres. That's a great story. <laughs> but, but like she's, I think she's so funny. It's really great. But I do feel like she's in a, she's in a trap of her own design because you're right. She's like, she's acting like the character on her show before that character could come out. And I, I mean, as a gay person myself, that would be, I just feel really terrible about that. Oof. I don't but know. You know like what? I That's, said, it's an object lesson for any it's minority. An evolution, don't, don't end up like this. But it's an evolution. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to suggest that it's a progression either, but I, I think that it's very difficult to, March to your own drummer publicly. And so I that's what I mean when I say I can understand when you don't want to occupy a space of always being in contrast to other people, always being always sort of pointing out your difference. I don't know. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I was at the Whitney today and Andy Warhol, Jean Michael Basquiat, Keith Haring, you can march the beat of your own drummer. Uh, did you know what happened to all of those people? I know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Then just let me have this. Let me have this point, Trisha. What happened to them is not necessarily the point. You know. Maybe the culture does. Do you think the culture can embrace that? Really, um, Jason? Do you think the culture is always asking us to conform at its at at its most basic level? And and Jason. Ask, answer her question and answer this. Like, if we don't conform, does that mean that society is culture will shake apart? Like, why, why this this desire for everyone to come into line? Do you think? And what would happen if we don't? Well, I, I honestly, I think it's pretty situational. She is. She is. Um, she's been hosting a daytime television talk show. I do think that that pretty the. the <laughs> At least the, the television industry yeah. and the viewership does kind of demand a very narrow lane for that particular space. That's her choice. However, yeah, that is okay, her choice. So let's be clear: like she didn't, she didn't wake up and they're like, "You're doing daytime TV." Like that's, yes. that was her choice. So I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I agree. That was her choice. She chose to be in that lane, and in that lane, I do think to your question, Trisha, I think the culture demands a certain narrow set of behaviors and images. We certainly can think of lots of people, for instance, in the music industry that have made a career by being different um, throughout their career. So I I think it's situational. Um, And I think, Chris, like to your question, does the culture come apart? I I think. Because I want because hold on a second, because what you just said, right, was like daytime TV imposes like these restrictions on her. Well, what if it didn't? What if she's like, I have a daytime talk show and I'm a lesbian. I'm married to Portia de Rossi, who's super hot. So, you know, we're having sex like she could have done that. Would it have been successful? I don't know, but she didn't think it would. And I think that's what's interesting to me. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, that's right. And I, I can't think of examples of people who succeeded in that space doing things different. So I, I don't know. It might mean a much smaller viewership. Well, good luck to her and her billions. Um, well, it's beyond her, though. It's not. It's no, it's, not, it's beyond her. And I think it's this whole thing has really caused me to think about the gains that we minorities have made in the past 20 years and how we got there. I mean, you've heard me, you've heard me both be very critical of the LGBTQ movement, both on this podcast and offline about how I just feel like we went down the wrong way. And there was a, there was a moment in time where we had a choice and we're like, we kind of want to go to the country club with our parents. And then that was that. Um, I just, again, I, I think what the Ellen situation shows me is like how quickly you can fall into this trap and, and be very successful and be very famous and be very well-liked, but the cost feels really high. And it's just, like I said, it's an interesting cautionary tale going into the new year. Okay. So um, that done, let's talk about recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason. Recently, I had a hankering to do crossword puzzles. Okay. And <laughs> hold on. I downloaded. I <laughs> no, what? I thought this would be okay. What? Go ahead. No, Go this ahead. is media. I downloaded an app, New York Times crossword app, and I have been absolutely addicted. It is annoying, and yet I can't stop doing it. It's like so hard, right? They're they're hard, and it's not it's not just that they're hard. Yes, it's hard, but then some of the clues, it's like, oh come on, like you can't really deduce that the word is. Now you have to give an example because you just can't launch that and then be like, come on, give us an example. All right, can you come back to me because I'll have to look. Okay, (laughs) so so to be clear, um, America, Jason's recommending downloading an app to your phone. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) recommendation while jason's doing crosswords on his phone (laughs) (laughs) go (laughs) um (laughs) my sister and i watched the six hour r kelly documentary i was emotionally really invested in the story in, 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 in the women's stories. And I think afterwards, my sister and I had really, really deep, really powerful conversations about our childhood and the things that happened to us as women and, and how we feel as women and stuff like that. So I think it was a really, um, it was a, it really inspired like real teachable moments. Um, and a couple of friends came over and we just sort of it, conversations mushroomed afterwards. I tried to really stay away from the online stuff because the online stuff was super toxic. But for people who I knew and um, with whom I felt close and, and could share, I think the documentary was a really good thing to share and talk to each other about. So I would really recommend it. I mean, even though it's probably super disturbing, I think for particularly for women of color, it really unmasks some things. And if you can watch it with other women who m- might be able to give you a space to talk, I think it's I think it's really powerful and really well done. So I would recommend that. I'm terrified. I can't. You're terrified of it. <laughs> I I, I'm gonna have to wait. I mean, if, if anyone watches it, like, just it's a big old trigger warning. It's um, it is it is it it's, is it's in I mean it's intense and 
I mean, we're talking about black children and it, that's a sore spot for me, like the abuse of black children and support for that, like structural support for that. It makes me want to vomit. I don't know if I can get through a six part series. What's really, I mean, I won't defend that part of it. I mean, I think you're, you're right about that, but I think what's really important is I was young during the Aaliyah period. And so it's just really interesting to be reminded of how the world was being constructed for us at that time. You know, what's nice about looking at a documentary this many years later is that it lays it all out so much clearer Mm -hmm. so that your brain can actually see things the way they really are. It it lays the patterns out for you so you can can go from A to B. Like the OJ documentary was fantastic in that way. You can see it, right? Whereas when you're younger, you're too involved and wrapped up in it. I will say this, and this is just a noteworthy piece. I think one of the one of the psychologists in the documentary said something really powerful, and I, I I'm not giving anything away by saying it. And I thought it was really useful for us to think about why it can be really difficult for people to reject people who've been who are super problematic. And he said, you know, people weave these these folks as products, so their music or whatever it is that they do, into so many important parts of their lives that it can be really difficult for people to figure out how to hold on to the positive moments of their lives and pull away from the thing that they've associated with it. So like an R. Kelly song was associated to your graduation. I was going to say, how do you feel about your graduation if you have to excise, I believe I can fly fly out of of it. You know what I mean? And and, and, And so it was really helpful, I think, not for the people who are celebrating him. That's stupid. That's weird. But for the people who really struggle with that, I thought that was a really keen insight. I think it's something that people should think about, you know, like how do you sort of hold on to the parts that are really valuable and reject the ones that aren't, you know, it's a complicated process, but I think as adults where we have to do it and we should. That's a very helpful articulation of it. Yeah. Uh, Bill Cosby was the graduation speaker at my college graduation. Wow. <laughs> I had Maya Angelou, so fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Trisha, who spoke at your graduation? I remember who spoke at the NYU one, the master's one. It was, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was the Asian director of The Incredible Hulk. What was his name? Ang Lee. Ang Lee. Ang Lee. Wait, I, that's the movie you're going you're gonna to mention know, with I his know. name? He's going to be the movie. For that him, movie, I, think, I couldn't even get through that movie. I know. I had no to one get could. I'm it's the it was so bad. I'm, thinking, I'm talking to Chris. I was like, I'm not going to say Sense and Sensibility. Um, <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? We watched Sense and Sensibility together. I know, I know. Um, uh, oh, yeah. But you know what? I don't remember who was my undergrad one. I think she was actually a big deal. I was, um, <laughs> I was there, and I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> The uh, only thing I remember from your graduation is them saying your name. I was so bored. So it could have been a good speaker. And I had a good seat. So there was no way it was a good speaker. My Angela, I was like in the stadium next door. So I could barely remember it. Like I, I, remember, I, re- I remember seeing her, but like. I mean, what I remember, which is so painful now. I mean, I listened to Bill Cosby a lot growing up. I remember I had this record, uh, a vinyl record of an album of his, Bill's Best Friend. I used to listen to it over and over again. It was so funny. And, you know, having seen him, of course, on the Cosby show and on your, you know, putting pops and all that stuff. When I remember I was sitting somewhat close to the middle aisle and when he appeared from the back heading towards the front and he had his big smile, it was like so exciting. It was like, oh, my goodness, I'm this close to him. He's speaking at my graduation. You know, I went to college in Philly. I was born in Philly. He's from Philly. Like it was so 
exciting. His speech was actually not that great, um, but it was still like so special. And now it's just all gone to hell. <laughs> now we uh, have to figure out how to repair your graduation and then just simply move that speech to the side. <laughs> I do, I do feel bad for his 50-some victims, too, but I, I really am upset about my graduation. <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. Um, just kidding. Okay, everyone. Uh, <laughs> you can send feedback to Jason. Jason at outrageous.com. No, I'm kidding. That's not real. But um, do seek out Jason and hold him responsible for that comment, please. Uh, in the meantime, have you what found out you? any of these difficult clues to share with us, Jason? Yeah, I have an example. So there's a clue. Gush on stage. Gush on stage, or gush, I guess. I think. <laughs> and, the, and the word is emote. Oh. Now, someone who's gushing oh, on it. stage, yeah, they are stage. emoting, but emoting means a lot of different things. Like, it's not only gushing on stage. I'm not a, a thesaurus. What do you want? I, I mean, it's you could say gushing and it would be better than it gushing on that stage. That would be emoting. Okay, whatever. But Okay, let's move on. Uh, my recommendation, Netflix has resuscitated the early eighties uh, sitcom One Day at a Time, a Norman Lear joint back in the day about a single mom raising two daughters, one who was Mackenzie Phillips and the other one who was um, not just Valerie Bertinelli. Valerie Bertinelli. So now Norman Lear still is involved in the remake. It's about a He's still alive? I didn't know he was still alive. Yeah, I guess, yeah. So it's wow. about a Latina woman with two kids who lives with her mom, who's played by the incomparable Rita Moreno. And she's was a nurse in Afghanistan and she's back. She suffers from PTSD and there's all like these real moments that come out in the show. Like you laugh and you cry. I think I've cried every other episode. It's really, really great. And you can watch it right now on Netflix. I highly recommend it. And I want to just point out just because we had this conversation before that the family is Cuban and Rita Moreno is a famous Puerto Rican actress and she plays a Cuban with the Cuban accent and everything I mean, we had this conversation on the podcast, like, I don't know why that doesn't bother people, but maybe it does bother somebody. Um, I don't think it should. I just think it's interesting. Like if they had gotten a white woman to play that part, then there would have been, heads would have exploded. But I just, I wonder how Cubans feel about Rita Moreno's portrayal of like a Cuban octogenarian. Um, any, if there's any Cubans out there listening, let us know. I'm just, I'm just curious. I don't know if I should be enjoying this so much. <laughs> One day at a time. It, until it, they tell you different. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's great, by the way. Imagine being working from like the 1950s to today. I know. Fuck. Anyway, that's our show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's our show. Jason recommended a crossword puzzle. I, I feel no, like. An app. An app. <laughs> oh, okay you're right that's better <laughs> no i guess you experienced it and you think other people should experience it yeah but what app is it it's a new york times app new york times crossword puzzle app. Right. is there like a competitive feature if i download it can i like face off against you so you can see you smarter or no <laughs> i'm gonna say no whether it's true or not because <laughs> i have no interest in engaging in that game with you <laughs> And on that note, good night, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.